Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 6 of the Clarinet.com podcast. Before we get started today, I just want to say that I'm sorry for the delay in releasing this week's episode. Um, I had an old laptop that was pushing four or five years, and as I started editing these hour-long podcasts and video files, I it was really starting to show its age. So I've since upgraded to a brand new, fantastic laptop that's going to plow through these things much easier. So it's going to make the day-to-day working on the podcast behind the scenes quicker, but unfortunately we had a couple days without a computer at all here, so it's a little hard to upload a podcast without one. So thanks for your patience, and um, I'm looking forward to continuing on the regular Monday schedule, starting this coming Monday actually with an interview with Catherine Ladano. Uh, today's episode though, we talk with David Bloomberg, who's had a diverse musical career as a performer, instructor, clinician, and music producer. He's also an artist for Bakun Musical Services and Didaria Woodwinds. We discussed some of his career highlights, including working on the John Williams clarinet concerto recordings, his MyTempo music software service, his involvement with the now-defunct mp3.com music startup in the late 1990s, and his Skype teaching career, and much, much more. I'd like to remind everyone that if you're interested in winning the products and services mentioned on the podcast, you need to be absolutely sure to follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and YouTube. You could be the number one best listener fan in the world, and I would have no way of providing you with a prize if you don't um, if you don't follow on there. It's the only way I can get in touch effectively. You can have up to five chances to win too if you if you like on every source. This episode's giveaway is a free forty five minute Skype lesson with uh, today's guest, David Bloomberg, and you can either use this lesson for yourself or you can give it to a keen clarinet player in your life, whether that be your son or daughter or a friend or or even a student of yours, it's up to you. And one more thing before we start today, I just want to thank everyone for listening. It's It's been such a great uh, experience so far already doing this, and we have some absolutely amazing artists and guests lined up um, for the coming weeks, which I'll be announcing on Monday. But there's now over 20 in the list, and um, I just couldn't be happier that we've already got half the year filled up only uh, two months in. So thanks so much for, um, for all your support, and... Uh, Without any further ado, here's the interview with David Bloomberg. Hi, David, and welcome to the Clarinet.com podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. So back in the 90s, you were pretty heavily involved with digital music, and that led you to some interesting opportunities. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I started out, I was having an accompaniment service where I would do custom tempo. It was called My Tempo Custom Accompaniments for clarinet and piano. So if somebody wanted, say, Weber first clarinet concerto and they wanted a practice tempo, it was kind of a competitor to Music Minus One. I wasn't happy with the Music Minus One stuff at the time. and I wanted to give an alternative. And there were a lot of pieces that people wanted to play with accompaniment. They just didn't exist. So they wanted, uh, and there was definitely demand for it. So I would uh, take a piece and I would arrange it, and typically it would be MIDI. And then I would produce it, give it a good sound and and realistic interpretation as much as I could back then. And uh, I got a lot of customers from that. Uh, Even Ricardo Morales was one of them. I still make stuff for him from time to time. His wife auditioned for the Philly Orchestra with an accompaniment recording that she practiced with. I mean, it was used by quite a number of people back then. Wow, that's actually really interesting. Sorry to interrupt. For um, sure. next week, I'm having or coming up here, I'm having someone from the Royal Conservatory in Canada here, and uh, what they have is they have all their books out now with accompaniment. But one of yes. the things I'm going to ask them when I talk to them is, 
well, how could we make this a little more modernized? Like we can't expect a kid to just start practicing at full speed. And, and some of the performance discretion has to be around picking your own tempo. Like where do you feel really comfortable playing this at, you know? Sure. So is this something that that service does or did? I mean, you can take a recording or does it have to be MIDI? Well, no, it did at that time. Um, at that time, it had to be MIDI to adjust the tempo. Uh, now there's a program called the Amazing Slowdowner, which mm -hmm. you can do anytime. And even Windows Media has in the player where you can slow down a track. So you yeah. Can, uh, but the Amazing Slowdowner, though, you can change the pitch also in sense. And that's good also, either sense or half steps. So you can you know, play the Mozart Concerto. Uh, with an orchestral accompaniment on B flat clarinet, which you really shouldn't do, but <laughs> so anyway, saying about the digital music. Um, so I was releasing the the recordings, and there was a website that was kind of popular. It was an MP3 website, and I said, you know, I'm going to put my tracks on that. So I started uploading my accompaniment tracks for sale on that website, and or actually I get samples. So I'd have maybe three or four minutes of an accompaniment. You know the, the Verdi Rigoletto variations or Bassi, and people started listening and downloading, and they were using it. So I rose to the top of the woodwind charts, which there are not very many players on that, but I ended up getting a few people to come in, and uh, Andrew Simon was one of them. Uh, Jose Qatar was another, um, and we were releasing tracks, and I took recordings, recitals from me, and put it on, and, and it was getting a lot of listens. And then they started an artist representative program where uh, you could help people with their tracks, get them visibility. And I, I had some really unique ideas and it worked really well. And I ended up getting many, many artists under me. Um, Sean Osborne was one of the artists that I contacted. And I was actually asking Sean for Ricardo's phone number at the time because I didn't have it. And Sean said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll, I'd be glad to put my tracks on too. So I started working with Sean, and Sean told me about Michelle Zikowski needing a producer for the John Williams clarinet concerto that she wanted to release. And I had recorded the John Williams concerto at the 1993 Belgian, the uh, Ostend Belgian, or the Ghent Belgian clarinet festival. And my recording that I got, and I sent it to her, sounded better than the audio engineer at the festival. So she knew that I could do, do good work and was glad to take me as the producer and that was the beginning of that. Wow. So you actually, this the startup sort of idea led you to some pretty huge audiences then as far as as um, getting the word out there about what you were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The artists that I ended up working with, um, I had several hundred groups underneath me when I was working with the MP3 website. And I was getting a cut of their, it was you know, a percentage of what they would make. And it didn't cost them anything. It was above what they made that the website was giving out because they were paying to the artist $1 million a month. And it was from an advertising revenue and they would split it among 200,000 artists, but based on listens. So if you got most of the listens, you're making most of the money. So the groups that I worked with, uh, the total, they're making 85,000 a month doing really well. Wow. It's so amazing though, that this idea has existed back then. Um, cause now we have Spotify and there was RDO and Google music and all this stuff. But they seem to really be paying out small dividends. Yes. And that happened um, with MP3, the, the website, it ended up getting bought by Universal Vivendi. Uh, and then eventually CNET bought it and turned it just an informational website. But when uh, Universal bought it, it went down from $0.07 cents per download, listen, to $0.03. Cents, and then it ended up being like a tenth of a penny 
at the very end of it. And now it's way worse than that. I mean, you get a listen on, uh, say, YouTube, and you get you know ten thousand listens, and maybe you made four cents. So it's there's not much money in it. Well, it's funny because I'm actually looking into. I just recorded my first CD a while ago, and we're now looking into releasing it and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And uh, it's funny because I always wanted to record a CD, and I kind of missed the CD age in a way. Um, and now I've kind of missed the iTunes age and now it's like, man, what is this going to make on Spotify? Like I'm only going to be able to buy a cup of coffee. Like it's well, The thing is you haven't missed the iTunes age. The promotion for iTunes is much more difficult. Um, I do well on iTunes. I still do well on iTunes. Um, the, the John Williams clarinet concerto is, has always been a top 20 clarinet where if you, if you search clarinet concerto and go to albums, it's always in the top 20. I have two different concerto albums uh, that are both in the top 30. So it still gets a lot of sales and way, way more than Michelle ever made with the hard copy of the CDs. Um, hmm. Much, much more she's made with iTunes. Well, iTunes is so great. I mean, you can just go on there and, and click and all of a sudden you have this great music and it's even a great teaching tool. Absolutely. What was it like working with Michelle and John Williams was conducting that recording, correct? John Williams conducted the recording. The recording's from the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And the piece has not been performed maybe four times total. I mean, not a lot of times it's been performed. So the recording was made from their engineer way back in the early 90s. So I had to do a lot of work to get it so that the audio levels were right, so you could hear soft passages that louder passages wouldn't overmodulate. Um, there was sound uh, reduction that was used. It was bad. So it's, it was definitely a work in progress. Uh, with the two albums, one has a sunrise cover. The other one is a dark blue. And if you listen to both of them, and by the way, the dark blue has a Corleano clarinet concerto. The West Coast premiere of that is mm -hmm. on that. But the audio quality um, on the Williams concerto is much lower than I would want, but it was what it was. And it still sold because people wanted to hear the piece. But it wasn't something you go, oh, this is fantastic. On that same album, the Bartok Contrasts is a really good quality. So you can hear that to hear the work that I've done mm -hmm. quality-wise. Uh, the Williams Concerto is just like basically remastering something that was dead. Okay. So they remastered that in 2010 then. That's when... Well, I, I remastered in 2000. Yeah, originally it was uh, 2001 or two. Mm -hmm. And then 2010 was the, the Sunrise cover. And that was pretty good. I mean, people that panned it before were like, oh, it's, it's pretty good now. Okay, so you, you mastered it then, or did you produce I, I, your recording? What I did was I, I remastered it. So the recording I got was the completed recording, and then I had to do audio you know, with programs and, uh, and listening. Because it's not only the tools that you have, but the ear behind that. Um, I've worked, uh, the principal clarinetist for one of the major, major orchestras in England right now I'm working with, um, and remastering some of the recordings that he did that he didn't like. And he's like, Dave, can you do anything with this? And I tweaked it and he got it back. He's like, oh, this is fantastic. So yeah, it can be done. Okay. So it, it's such a compelling piece, but it's only had a handful of performances as you say, and, um, it's been recorded I twice then. It, no, it's it's well. Actually, there there are two different recordings uh, with two different orchestras. But uh, specifically, there's one that Michelle is like, "This is the one to use," so I use it. 
But that's so different from other pieces, even for more contemporary composers. Um, is there a reason that this one stayed unpublished and been so carefully... John didn't like the piece. When he first heard it, um, he didn't like it. And actually, after I remastered it, and his, uh, his management wanted the recording, so I sent it to him, and uh, he liked it a lot more. So there's, there's still a possibility for that piece to get revived. At first, he didn't like the piece. He, uh, Michelle said he kind of considered it to be a stinker. Hmm. Personally, I love the piece. Um, in terms of his concerti, it's different from a lot of Williams' concerto in that it's not about trees. <laughs> Literally, a lot of his concerti have to do with trees. It's funny because a lot of people, myself included, haven't encountered a lot of his music outside of his film score work. Um, and it, it's too bad. I, I'd, I'd like to see more of it. He does, uh, he writes his, his concerti when he's on breaks mm -hmm. from doing film scores. So when, when it's low season, he'll write a concerti. And he's done many. Uh, bassoon, cello, French horn. And again, French horn, all about the trees. There's different movements that have to do with with trees and tree battle and um his flute concerto was written around the time ai the movie and if you remember the music from that it was really strange and this flute concerto is really strange you, you can't walk away humming really any part of the flute concerto and at the end of the piece you're not quite sure it's done whereas the williams concerto reminds me of his music from say superman star wars in the slow movement and i released the slow movement you know with michelle's permission on YouTube. So if you go to my YouTube site, uh, which is youtube.com slash Blummy, B-L-U-M-M-Y 24X7. So Blummy 24X7. And on that page, there's the John Williams Clarinet Concerto second movement, slow movement, which is free to listen to. And that, there's a part of it that sounds like, uh, you know, when Superman, when his planet exploded, it's that big climax and just the sound of, of desolation. So what movie was it that John was working on back then when he wrote this? Do you know, that might be interesting to... It was, uh, was kind of close to AI at the time. Was it? Yeah, because I guess it was before. Yeah, before. he wrote it in uh, 1991. So yeah. movie-wise, I think AI... I don't remember when that came out. Maybe later 90s, but um, exactly what he was working on at the time, I'm not sure. But this, this concerto is unique, and to me it's one of his best concerti. If you listen to the other ones, um, I think this one's really special. Mm -hmm. You can definitely hear his sort of theatric influence yes. as and you listen. And he gave the piece to Michelle. Um, he said, Michelle, this is yours to keep for you. Um, and he didn't want it released or played by anyone else. Uh, and that's kind of been that way. Michelle does have someone selected that she wants to play it, a specific player. And he mm -hmm. knows that as well. So uh, it's it quite could the happen. gift. Uh, what? It's quite the gift. Yeah, quite the gift. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so you're also so, the producer for Windworks Washington. Um, yes. What is Windworks your role yep. there? What does it uh, pertain? Um, and that was funny. I, I kind of ended up coming into that just because I had brought some equipment and recorded the first, the inaugural concert, as well as recorded with video the rehearsals because I, I wanted to make if possible, or set it up so that there'd be a documentary about this historic group. Um, mm -hmm. Awesome concept. It's taking the top players in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Band and combining them for like a super band, 
basically, with a few invited guests. I'm one of the few invited guests. I, I'd auditioned for the Navy band back in the late 80s and had a really, really high score, and they remembered me. So um, I was invited to play in the group. But they also have National Symphony members in the group. Um, so I, I brought my equipment, and the Navy band audio engineer also brought his equipment, and we both recorded it. And at the end, my recording ended up sounding better. So they... I made, you know, uploaded it and put it together. Um, so it was, it was a very successful, successful concert. And are they still active? They're, what's going on right now is they're looking for funding to get uh, solidly funded because that group is very expensive to run, uh, be it the rehearsal hall, getting the, the staff for it. Um, we're losing Arnold Gabriel's uh, concert uh, manager, concert hall manager for it. And to get everybody's schedules lined up so that they're not working or on tour, et cetera. So that's, we're in, still in the planning stage of, of doing something regular, and that includes getting, getting funded by a major source. It sounds like they're flying people in from all over, too. That can't be. Can't Some be people cheap. were flying. Not a lot of people were no. flying. But no, not a lot of people. Mostly, I mean, players that are in the groups that are local because they're in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Band. So you don't have to, in, in D.C., you don't have to travel far for excellence. Yeah. For a so band. You, yeah, your career is focused a lot on um, digital online kind of um, endeavors. So you're now an active teacher on Skype, which is, which is um, a new frontier for, for lessons in a way. Um, what do you have to say about that? Is it's it's been popular? How does it it's work? It's new. I've been doing Skype since oh, two years now, two and a half years now. Um, as well as I have a very full and popular uh, teaching, just in person studio. I've always mm. had a lot of students and been very busy with teaching on my studio. But what happens with Skype is I can teach students in different time zones. You know, I can teach a student in San Diego at 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night, which, you know, seven or eight for them, not a problem. I can teach a student in Korea at 10 in the morning for him. You know, it's the timing where, or 10 in the evening, more like, uh, you know, in the summer, it's 11 for them. So whatever the time zone is, I can teach in off times that typically students are in school or they're in college, you know, not available. So it opens up avenues and it also gives students a chance to work with me that would not be able to otherwise unless you know, they took a flight and came in and took a lesson or studied with the Philadelphia, you know, the Philadelphia Music Festival in the summer. Totally. And that's what I think is so fantastic about the idea of Skype lessons is it's really you could, if you wanted to, study with someone who's on the other side of the earth, you know? Sure, sure. One of the things with Skype that, that you really have to be good at, you have to have a really, really good ear because if you don't, there's the whole issue. You know, if you can't name the notes that the student's playing... You don't really want to say, well, I heard a wrong note about the second measure. It's one of those run, you know, somewhere in the run. You want to be able to say, ah, it's a D-sharp, and right away they pick it up. Mm -hmm. um, to know your repertory really well, to be able to hear nuances. And Skype, it can be difficult to hear nuances, and there's some technology that makes it quite accurate that's available, that you actually hear the real sound and no compression. But even with compression, um, I can still get a lot done, and I've worked with students uh, even without the video, just audio only. I was teaching a teacher at a conservatory in Germany, and we were working on articulation, and his camera didn't work. So I couldn't see what he was doing, but I had the diagnostic skills to say, try this, try this, do this, and it worked. Wow. 
So you don't have to be necessarily hands-on. I can tell the student what to do and then listen and say, okay, that's right. And it's worked really well. I've had students do you know, major improvement, um, got a scholarship to Colburn, won a competition in California where he's the only clarinet uh, student at all to make the finals. They were all flutes otherwise for the entire state of California in one second prize. Um, I've had a really good track record teaching Skype students, so it's fun too. The students don't get as nervous because they don't feel like somebody's in the room with them. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, they don't get that uptight. Like, my students are relaxed around me, but still, you're playing in front of somebody that knows what you're doing. And that, there's a little bit of you know, nerves in that. So with Skype, it's definitely reduced. It's interesting because I was just thinking about how much more it seems like it's a performance to the student too. For some reason, you know, if you're in the room with them, I think sometimes it's the, the atmosphere is, is more social. But when you're performing for your camera on your computer and someone's listening to that, it all of a sudden has become, in a way, more performance-like. Does that make sense? It can be. It can be more performance-like if that's how they choose to look at it. Yeah. But otherwise, it's almost like they're playing for their pillow. I mean, yeah. you know, because you don't get nervous when, you're, when nobody's in the room, you're yeah. fine. Um, but... You know, it's I, I find that students are much less nervous playing on Skype than, than they would be in person. Even with the same, you know, student versus in-person versus Skype, it's just you're not in the room with them. Well, think about how other technologies, or sorry, other um, industries have been affected by this kind of technology. We've, we've got doctors now doing this kind of thing and performing surgeries even remotely with, with tools that aren't even there. Yeah, and uh, I guess it's sort of the next step in a lot of fields is to have this sort of virtual interaction. I personally haven't really tried it too much, and there must be some solutions to the the problems I'd be imagining. Like I would want to, you know, be able to look at the score. You just talked about that, but also just the tactile explanations sometimes that you need to give and and show. How, how does that work? Well, I mean, tactile. I'll play for them. I'll show them um, if I need them to do anything. You know, be it, you know, put a thumb under their chin and push. I'll just play uh, play an open G and push with the other hand. Mm -hmm. um, I'll for the music. That's never a problem either. I have the part, or you know, I'll say give me a link if the part's online. Um, and most of the stuff I have had long memorized. <laughs> that's never a problem. But um, with you know, the ear being able to hear and diagnose. I'm, I'm big at diagnosing problems and doing and diagnosing quite quickly. So I don't find that to be a challenge. Uh, the limitations, one of the limitations, a big one is you can't play duets with the student. Oh. Um, you can't because you can't talk at the same time and listen. It's like a walkie-talkie. It's one way at a time. So that's an issue. The student could record it. Uh, there's actually a new program out that's really cool. Um, I get the name of it. It's uh, acapella is the name. And you can record yourself and record a duet and record a trio. You could record an octet of yourself playing and it plays it back with the various lines on top of each other and you record live. So, you know, that could be done. Hmm. And mail the students the file and they could do that. But you can't really do the in-person duets. So that's, that's really the limitation. Other than that, I don't find there to be, and working on a read, you know, I can work on reads quite quickly and efficiently. Uh, so except for that, it's a really good way. And for a student that's say taking on audition and getting that final touch, 
that's where it's the most valuable. I don't recommend it for beginning students. I wouldn't want to have a beginner because there's just too many different dynamics to deal with. And there's the constant stop, fix, stop, fix. Whereas a performer that's at a high level, you know, you can tweak it and not have to constantly stop. Yeah. So I guess you also couldn't really do any repairs on their instrument, but surely it's something that with a more advancing student, you could explain to them what to kind of look for and, and, and check out. So Oh, easily. And even with the, if there's an issue with the instrument, I could still diagnose what the problem is. I'd just tell them, do this, try this, and they would find it. Hmm. might take a little longer than I would, but <laughs> it could be done. Well, I can see the point about beginners, too, because so many times like they really have no idea what they're doing and that's you know the point <laughs> so at that point at that stage it, it's probably a lot harder but yeah that's interesting it's something i should explore and and you also want to i did an interview for the um nafme the national association for music education that's the big fifty thousand subscriber magazine that um does the national band i had a student in the first section of national band um, and they did an interview with me uh, about teaching and starting beginners. So that was last uh, October, a year ago, October magazine. And it was about you know, starting beginners. And I kind of described what I do. And, and you really need to be in person because, for one thing, the reed and the instrument itself, you want to make sure that the instrument's working okay. Um, and a beginner just can't possibly know that. Same for the reed. If the reed's way too soft, then they're just going to use less pressure and end up having a bad sound, but it's better to diagnose or you know, be able to try the instrument in person. Mm -hmm. So along those same lines, which, which books do you like to use then with students who might be, and this is kind of an odd question that just came to me, but sure. if you have a student, let's say you said someone in Korea, and then you're used to using a certain book that maybe is only available in the, the States, like some sort of method, um, how do you rectify that situation? Well, what ends up happening with Korea is they use the Royal Conservatory method. So they're, you know, they're trying to pass level eight, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm working with them with the book that they're using. And for me, it's it's not always what they play, but how they play. Yeah. Because whatever, you know, you come in with whatever, preferably not a pop tune, but come in <laughs> with whatever and and I'll work, you know, the musicality, the technique, uh, voicing properly. So uh, if they're working from the Royal Conservatory, I teach actually with one of the heads, uh, Nicholas Cox at the Agiate Festival. He's, he's the head of the Manchester, he's dean of the Manchester Royal Conservatory. So that Royal Conservatory method, a lot of the overseas, including Korea, use that method. Um, I do like using the Galper method, uh, be it the Tone Technique and Staccato book, uh, his Scales book, his book one and book two for the beginners, great, great books. Uh, but again, you know, I, I try to get the students to get what I have, or I'll send them a link where to order it, and you know, they'll mm -hmm. order it. But I'm very flexible in working with you know, what they need to work on. If it's an advanced student, somebody taking orchestra auditions, again, they've got the repertory list that they need to work on. Or students that are auditioning for college, they have the list of college works that they need to work on. So, you know, we're doing the Debussy, the Poulenc, uh, the Mozart always, um, Copeland Concerto, whatever, whatever they need to work on, I work on. So I do want to touch on that Galper um, book because I, I have some questions about that. But before sure. we move on... Um, my, my other question was the microphone. I, I found, 
personally that when I'm listening to clarinet, uh, and a couple weeks ago, Tom Powalski was actually talking about this, but he really likes to use good ribbon mics to get a good sound on the clarinet. And if it's like recorded with the laptop mic, how can you gauge how much is part of the, the you know, maybe the quality of a microphone go- playing into the sound instead of the student? Is it just something your ear gets kind of used to? My, my ear is definitely used to that. Uh, I do recommend that students upgrade their microphone. Uh, don't use the webcam that comes with the computer. Microsoft makes a good one. It's uh, about $50 street price, retails for 100 And that has a decent microphone. You wouldn't want to record an album with it. Um, I use... The, it's a large, it says blue on it. Um, oh, the snowball. Yeah, yeah, the big one, the heavy, the one that you pick up and go, wow, this is heavy. Those are, wait, is it the Yeti or the snowball? Because yeah, the Yeti. Snow, the Yeti, oh, okay. Yeah, the Yetis yeah. are great. Oh, yeah, I, for me, I don't care what it costs, I just want quality, and that's, that just happens to not cost that much. And you know, those blue, there's a snowball that I've had some students get too, just for for messing around. It's smaller. And it's so good that a a few years ago, I actually recorded a whole version of New York Counterpoint on that. Cool. Yeah, those are good too. And they're maybe $50 less than the Yeti. Oh yeah, you can get one for $50 on sale. It's great. Okay, I've seen them for like $100, but the Yeti's around $200. Worth every penny if you're doing it a lot. Um, You know, I use the the webcam, Microsoft, and then the Yeti uh, for... And, and it works well. Although I did have one student that came to me for the Philly Orchestra Festival and uh, really super talented, the one that had gotten a scholarship to study with Yehuda at mm-hmm. Colburn, 15-year-old. And he meets me in person and he hears me playing. He goes, oh, you sound better in person. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, I hope it didn't sound bad online. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's something else to consider is what is the student hearing? But again, they're getting they're getting the tips. Um, I'm teaching a student in Canada, Manitoba possibly, who and he's a teacher. He gives clinics. He uh, has many students. He, he's first chair in a, in a band. He's president of a band, and he um, and he's taking lessons with because he wants that advanced, high level master teach, master teacher work. And he'll say, you know, if I get ten things out of a forty five minute lesson, I'm happy. And he records the lesson. And he listens and he goes, I'm only halfway through and I've already got fourteen. <laughs> so. You know, the, the, the tips are definitely good. Fingering tips, uh, how to approach something, very, very easy to do on Skype. I hadn't considered that, but I guess they can record it and watch it again. Oh, yeah. And that's, I record lessons really good. as well, so I want to hear that. They record it. They don't have to watch it, but they can listen to it. You know, just put your iPhone down and boom, you record it. Um, and that's that's a good way to go. Well, that's one of the nice things I'm liking, not to toot my own horn here, but about sure. the, <laughs> about this podcast, and I've had my students listening to it because it's it's just something, why would you not, as a person studying clarinet, why would you not want to hear what these people have to say? You well, know? definitely, definitely to get information about just the, uh, the, the genre of the career, uh, personal stories of the artists, uh, you get tips. So yeah, to hear what it's like to, to be in the seat. Totally. So let's go back to Galper for a second here, because that's sure. rather interesting to me for, for three reasons. Um, in Canada, the Royal Conservatory method has always focused on having, it's kind of like the radio up here. We have to have some Canadian content. Okay. And um, Galper actually is from Edmonton, which is just a couple hours north of Calgary. So everyone uses that book or has used that book at some point as kind of just like a staple. Sure. Um, but it says you worked with him in, in your biography a little bit. Yes. Did you... I, well, I helped him write his scales book. Um, I was a reviewer for him. 
It originally started, uh, we were on a clarinet news group and, and chatting, and he writes me and he goes, Dave, you know, would you review this book for me? And I reviewed it, and he loved it. And then we became really good friends. I ended up being the distributor of his octave, his, his register key and register tube that he sold for buffet B-flat clarinets. Um, and that was pretty popular for a while. It kind of died down. Eventually, after he passed away, it was discontinued. But um, I helped edit his books. And uh, we remain good friends until he passed away. In the books, he has, I think he has at least five. There's the book one, book two, the scales. Um, and then there was like another version of book one and book two that he called beginner and intermediate advanced. Yeah, beginner. The second it's, it's time clarinet around. for beginners, it was called. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Cause there's... Clarinet for beginners. And there's also two scales books. Oh, is there? Okay. Um, well, the, I mean, the, the upbeat Behrman would be the other scale. I wrote the preface for that. And, okay. And when Mel Bay took it over, they kind of took my name out of the whole thing and just, it ref, it refers to me, but it, it doesn't say by, it's by Abe, but refers to me in, in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but his books and the older versions, the Boozy and Hawks clarinet for beginners book, I didn't really like the clarinet method books. I love, they're great. The order is good. The pieces are better. But the one that were published by Boozy and Hawks, the older version, I didn't like that much. And is that the one that has those little clarinet mechanic things on every page? There's like these really focused X. I'm just trying to remember which one's which now because I, I okay, use well, both, but I've never paid attention to which publisher. The clarinet for beginners, uh, the clarinet method has drawn clarinet on the cover. And it's a uh, shiny cover. The old Boozy and Hawks is kind of a dull cover. I think it was like a blue and a yellow. Ah, uh, okay. Or yeah, I do like the new ones. Yeah, the new ones are the shiny cover with a with a clarinet that was hand drawn. And I looked at the clarinet and I thought, you know, like the clarinet's it's good, but it's not great. So I said <laughs> to Abe, when I said, Abe, who drew the? You know, I was just wondering, kind of, could you get a better drawing? So I said, who drew that? He goes, my daughter. I shut up at that point. <laughs> I said, oh, it's great. Thanks. Oh yeah, it looks amazing. We were, me and Abe were great friends until he passed away. I was also good buddies with Dave Height, and I did reviews for Dave Height. Mm. Um, so those, you know, the clarinet method book guys, because they knew that I was successful in teaching. I'd had students win some really high-level competitions and was very active teaching. I think the, the Galper and the Height books are pretty much standard. I, I know in yes. Canada and the States, I, I would wonder about around the world as well. Um, they, yeah, the, the Galper book... See, one of the things is distribution and getting the books distributed is more difficult. The Mel Bay books are getting distributed much more, but the ones that are through Marva and Waterloo don't get that much distribution outside of Canada just because it's not a worldwide distributor. Mm -hmm. So you end up with, uh, in Europe, the James Collis method being quite popular and still quite popular. Um, on the back, you've got the Hegvig method. Uh, but Collis was one of Dave Schifrin's teachers uh, when Schifrin was young. So the Collis method is pretty popular in different parts of the world. Europe, uh, I, I've seen the Collis books. I haven't seen the Galper books there. So about Galper's method then, um, what my only, I'm not sure if it'd be a criticism or just sort of a something mm -hmm. that I sort of change when I teach from that book. I find that Tonguing comes really late. Was that intentional? It was intentional. He wants um, a really good legato and low note mm -hmm. technique done first. That's why he stays in the low notes quite a while. It's almost the end of the first book that we get to like actual tonguing. It's 
It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, he does take a while to, to do that. But, and what happens, you know, for some beginners, it's unfortunate, but they don't learn how to tongue and they end up tonguing with their throat. Mm-hmm. And, and I have students that come to me that just didn't know. Their director didn't ever caught it. And they're guh, guh, guh. Uh, a student even one time said, and I still remember this was in the 90s, he said, my director says I can't tongue. I said, what do you mean you can't? No, he tried to work with me, and then the guy had played clarinet. Yeah, I, I can't tongue. So he tongued with his throat. Fifteen minutes later, he's tonguing correctly. It didn't take that much effort to get it done right. It's a question of doing it correctly. It's always so sad when that happens because I, I don't know what it's like in the States, but I think band programs are fantastic, but unfortunately, there's so little individual attention. And something like tonguing, if you can speak, you can do it. It's sure, absolutely. There's no one who really can't tongue, um, but so many kids struggle with it so much. Is it like that down there? The other problem is the training is not that good. The directors don't have good training in how to play the instrument. Um, you get clarinet players that are teaching clarinet students, and that can work usually quite well. But you get a trumpet player, a percussion player, a flute player. They just don't know enough to really get the good details down. And some of them have been doing it 20, 30 years, and they still didn't learn how yeah, to teach I, properly. I can't imagine, though, to be in that situation with all those different instruments. It must be must be really challenging. It's There's got to be a way to sort of have more professional development out there to allow them to expand that kind of knowledge. Well, the, I mean, the best way, and this keeps me in business, is for the directors to actively encourage private lessons. Send mm-hmm. the kids out. Say, look, you're getting this, but you really need... Because one of the things with the band program is they're playing the same piece for months on end. They have maybe five or six pieces for months on end. They're not getting new repertory, so their sight-reading skills are not growing. Um, they're getting bored because they just played their three-minute piece 20 times and they're sick of it. So they don't have the motivation to practice because they sort of know their piece, and they're not improving that way. So... I tell the directors, look, you know, you need to get your kids in private lessons to keep their development growing. And the kids in the private lessons are the ones that don't quit. Yeah, totally. And the private lessons help, just like you say. I find so often you go to schools and and it's not really a fault of the teacher. They want their repertoire worked on and they don't have a method book for the kids to maybe go through. But a lot of the kids' practice time at home is just playing through their band pieces. And, I mean, once you know your band piece, you're not going to get better as a player by playing it for 40 minutes straight, you know? (laughs) Sure. You've got to kind of reach out and and find some new material to work on, and lessons help them find that. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other issues is that the director's time is being cut so short with cuts to the programs, where, you know, the, the old days, the good days... You'd have directors that had, you know, an hour a day, five days a week, and they could get a really good band program. And now it's a rotational schedule. You're getting 45 minutes or an hour on day two and maybe four, and that's it If at best. Um, the director's salaries are getting cut because they're cutting back. They're having them do more. They're getting rid of uh, employees sooner, making them retire so that they can thin out the staff and, and just overwork the directors. So they're spread quite thin these days. Yeah, everywhere. And with the economic downturn, it's only gotten worse. So, and, and the unfortunate thing about that is that music is one of those brain skills that is really good for the students to do that you don't get in any other subject. And kind of one of the points of learning in school is to get the brain more elastic and, and the ability to learn at a higher level. 
it's not necessarily the data that you learn because a lot of it you'll forget, but that skill set of being able to learn quicker and more efficiently. And music does that really well. And it's a shame to cut that as, well, it sounds nice and the kids are entertained, but it doesn't really do anything. And that's the short-sightedness of administration. Daryl Caswell, I don't know if you know who that is. He in invented a reed knife and he was on last week. And he was saying exactly what you just said. He was like, there are so many skills that you can't get in any other subject than music. Empathy is, is, is built, listening, um, all these things. And really, music should be the last thing to be cut. Um, exactly. But it's often the first, sadly. Yep. So sometimes you go and teach master classes to students as opposed to online or having them come to you. Yes. There's a summer program you do. Is that with the Philadelphia Orchestra? Yeah, it's the Philadelphia International Music Festival. And it's uh, P-I-M-F dot org, Philadelphia International Music Festival. Um, there's maybe 54 staff members that teach, of which 50 are Philadelphia Orchestra principal, associate principal players. I teach with Ricardo Morales, Sam Caviezel, and G. Lee. Uh, Ricardo's the one that hired me. He wanted me to come because he you know, knows my skill set and likes my teaching a lot. So brought me on board, and we get students from all over the world. It's a really great music festival. Uh, I've had students as far as Thailand. Um, there's master classes that we give at the festival, as well as I travel. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But the festival itself has seven orchestras. They have a college program that's called Music House. I think that's... Uh, you just look it up from pimf.org because <laughs> this is a link for the college part. But uh, any age, you can be 40. And I had a student, 35, from South America. He was a professional player, very good, that was there. A uh, student from Israel who was subbing with the Cleveland Orchestra. She was one of my students that was there. Um, the year, this past year, I had a winner of the comp concerto competition. A uh, year before, I had a winner and three out of the six finalists. And everyone studies with Philadelphia Orchestra members at the festival. But I ended up having three out of the six finalists that were uh, my students at the festival. So it's a very good clarinet group there. Um, and then with traveling, uh, well, I also teach at the Agiite International Clarinet Festival, which is held at the Grand Island of Canary in Spain. It's a Spanish Canary Island located off the coast of Morocco. And gorgeous, unbelievably gorgeous setting there. Um, one of those, you know, you can take a vacation there. And it's affordable, too. Uh, the hotel is like $95 a day for a four-star resort. Uh, wow. I rented a BMW at $200 for the week, and it was a stick BMW that was new, had 500 miles on it. So uh, nice stuff there. And the faculty is amazing. Me, Radovan, Kavali, uh, uh, there's um, also uh, Nicholas Cox from the Royal Conservatory, a big recording artist. It's there also. Uh, so this is really good faculty for clarinet. And we had about 50 students. This is the first year, this past year. Next year, it'll be even bigger. So I travel, um, I went to the Netherlands uh, and taught, I gave lessons at the um, uh, Utrecht, gave lessons at the Rotterdam, the Amsterdam Conservatory, and then one of my students, Skype students, is one of the faculty, clarinet faculty, he teaches the teachers at the Cologne Conservatory, so I went to Cologne and, and taught there as well, so awesome trip. Sounds like it, yeah. And, you know, working with students that are just... You know, fantastic players and hard workers. 
Um, I gave an impromptu lesson uh, for a student that was having trouble doing specific uh, with pitch and worked with her and, and in a half hour, her problem was fixed. And she says, yeah, and she's a master's student too. Um, getting her second master's in clarinet, there you can get two masters, which I don't get, but that's what they do. <laughs> getting her second master's in clarinet performance. She had her first master's in the States. And she said, you know, in a half hour, she learned more from me than she learned all semester so far. And the funny part is on Facebook and her teacher clicked like. I'm like, oh, geez, that, that can't be too politically good. <laughs> so one more thing I, I just realized I forgot to address here earlier. Um, you're partnered with some some companies, I think, uh, Silverstein and, and Bakun. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm an artist for, um, for Bakun. I love their clarinets. Uh, they're, the MOBA is what I play, MOBA Cocobolo and MOBA Grenadilla. Uh, I was introduced through Ricardo Morales, and, and I was playing Buffet Prestige for 30 years and loved it. Never thought I'd change instruments. Wasn't looking for a different instrument. But the sound that I was able to get with the Bakun clarinet, I like a, a very smooth, liquid, full, dark, but not overly dark. I mean, I want it to project, and I get that with the Bakun clarinet. So that... Artist for Bakun. Um, I play the Silverstein Maestro ligature, which is custom made for me. I'm, I was the sixth one ever made. Um, I also, and I do use also the BG ligature. I'm an artist for BG. I, I did the editing for their catalog, their United States distributor catalog. So the stores, when they get the catalog, I made it basically from Frenglish, French English to straight English. They wanted me to sort of uh, transcribe it so that it was legible and made sense mm -hmm. in English syntax. So I did that for BG. And then I've been an uh, artist for the RICO, uh, the, well, it's the Grand Concert originally. And since 1993 in Belgium, I was signed to, because I had a student win the ICA competition, a high school student for the senior competition back in 92, 17-year-old. So 93, RICO signed me because I really liked their Grand Concert read, switched over to it. And now I play the um, the classic, the Diderio classic read. Love it, great sound, really good response. So I, I use that. And um, you know, I I actually have a box of the Grand Concerts on my desk right now. I, I I love them as well. Yeah, yeah, they they were great read back then. They're still very good. Um, I like the the new classic. I didn't like the older classic. I used the regular reserve previously. Now mm -hmm. I don't like the regular reserve and like the classic because they switched it around and made it a higher grade read. So the classic's the one that I use. Hmm. So those four companies, Bakun, Diderio, uh, Silverstein, and BG are the companies that I, that I work with. And um, with the ligature, you know, some things I use for one, some I use for the other. I'm not exclusive. How, how do you think that the material plays into it? A few weeks ago, we had an interview, interview with um, Ryan Pereira of 3D uh, 3D clarinet innovations, and he's able to adjust the density and of his material. Um, and for wood, that'd be basically like, basically like telling it how to grow. But do you think that plays into it at all? There's definitely a difference with the material. Um, the dimensions, first and foremost, are the most important. I mean, dimension is at the top. That's huge. But along with dimension, to me, the material does make a difference vibrates differently. The clarinet is not a non-vibrating thing. You can feel it. Now, you can't necessarily dampen it unless you could cover the whole clarinet, but it's vibrating. The ligature's vibrating, the keys are vibrating, the, the body's vibrating. Uh, Bakun made a 
barrel out of a wood post. <laughs> he took like a literally out of a fence, took the post from a fence and made it uh, into a barrel. And it played, wasn't great, but it played. The, the dimensions were just right. Different material. Um, I tried snake wood one time because uh, I was spent seven hours at Bakun's trying different barrels and different. And his barrels are very consistent in measurement. You're not going to try one barrel and it's way off. They're, they're quite similar. And I tried snake wood, which was gorgeous yellow, really, really pretty. I looked at wow, and tried it. It wasn't for me. Didn't have the right sound. What is snake wood? Snake wood is, is a, uh, it's not wood made from a snake, but uh, <laughs> it's wood that uh, looks yellow and it's a gorgeous exotic looking wood, but it's called snake wood. So how does the density of that compare to uh, Grenadilla or Cocobolo or the fence post? Um, I don't know density wise, but it had a brighter sound. It oh, wasn't interesting. dark for me. It was, uh, it just had a bright sound. It wasn't for me. Uh, tulip wood is another wood that's gorgeous, but the sound wasn't for me. For E-flat, that would be nice. I think tulip was a little more muted sounding. Mm -hmm. um, but Cocobolo, I like. I think Grenadilla is a little brighter than Cocobolo. Uh, Cocobolo is just a comfortable wood to play with. Uh, but you can make barrels, you can make material. There's plastic ligatures, and they work fine. Uh, what happens with ligatures is it's holding the reed down, and that's the – I mean, you can take your thumb and hold the reed down with your thumb, and it may or may not accentuate frequencies, some ligatures do accentuate frequencies. Not to say that a ligature is going to kill frequencies, although some do as well, that you know feel like a blanket was thrown over the, the mouthpiece. But some are for response, some are for sound, uh, and they're both important because if you're feeling good about what you're doing, you know, if you're comfortable, then you're going to be a little more expressive. You're going to mm -hmm. want to play the thing more. That may not have a sound different at all. The tone might be the same, but if you're comfortable, you're going to want to do more. The ligature is really the place, too, where you can affect um, the resistance, even on the same mouthpiece. Like, I find that the, the the speed of articulation is really affected, of course, by the ligature. But it's one instance where, and, you know, this could just be a placebo effect, but I do feel that the plating on the ligature does affect this. To me, absolutely. And I've done blind tests, and there was a difference. It's interesting, because I've... I find that gold is often a bit brighter sounding, like a silver, uh, there's a silver plated copper one by Ishimori now that is just really nice. And th there's solid copper one too, it's just great. Um, See, have you tried well, those? Oh yeah, oh yeah, well, um, there's just, I, I have all of them actually. <laughs> Literally, I, I have, because, yeah, um, bef yeah I, I, I have a lot of ligatures and I've got all the Ishimori, well, I've got... Uh, Sounds like you're opening a drawer there. Yeah. They're all yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got the uh, the solid silver. I've got the solid silver gold plated, the rose gold plated. And of the Ishimori, I find that to be the best one of, of that ligature. But there's also the copper gold plated, which a lot of players play. It's the more affordable one. And they all just vary. And, and I have students, let's say, try this, try this. And they're just dealing with material. There's no difference in dimension. It's the same ligature, different material, and there's a huge difference. Like, wow. Same for the Silverstein. Uh, some are made differently, and they do play differently. Some more harmonics, some less. Uh, you could try a Leuven ligature. It's plastic. It still works. Some people like just a straight-up regular one that comes with a clarinet. That's fine. 
But to me, some ligatures make a bigger difference in accentuating certain components of the player. Sometimes there's not as big of a difference as sound as there in with feel. But again, if you if the feel works for you, it doesn't have to be the most expensive one. It could be a cheap one that feels really good and sounds really good, and you go with that one. Yeah, whatever you're used to. But yeah, um, and the same. I mean, the same for mouthpieces. Same for for equipment. Some people. Some equipment works better with one player than another player, and they find their voice on whatever works for them. So this week, um, you've been very generous with the giveaway on the podcast here. Um, you're going to offer one Skype lesson to to a listener. Was that? I think we said that was a 30-minute lesson, correct? Uh, 45 minutes. Oh, 45. Great. Yeah, I don't get much done in 30 minutes. So All right. <laughs> <laughs> so they can be anywhere in the world. And um, if you're interested in, in winning that, all you have to do is make sure to subscribe on the Facebook page and other forms of social media. And we'll pick a winner randomly from that. And, um, of course, we don't have to send that to you. But what you do have to be willing to, to, to do is have a Skype account so that you can go in and talk with Mr. Bloomberg. And, and of yes. course, you have to be able to play as well. <laughs> and, and it so. can be, you know, if, if it's your cousin or whatever. I mean, if you win it, then you get the name who gets the, the prize. So it's just as long as there's a student in front of me, I'm good with it. Great. So if people are interested in learning more about you and your services and products and things that you've uh, worked with and, and done, um, where can they find you online? My website is mytempomusic, M-Y-T-E-M-P-O music.com. And that's got links to everything. It's got links to my YouTube page, to Amazon, Sony Online, the recordings that I've done, because I've produced many recordings uh, for Michelle Zukovsky, for Jose Qatar, and also Duzan Soja. They're in Slovenia. Um, I've worked with the Getty Foundation, the Gordon Getty, the multi-billionaire in, uh, in California, worked with his foundation. Um, so mytempomusic.com. It used to be my tempo, and some search engines might show my tempo. I was bought out by a communications company that basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse because I really didn't want to give up my tempo. But uh, they said, you know, what will it take? And I gave them a number, and they called me back. Sure. Wow. So I just added music to my tempo, and twelve dollars later, I got the <laughs> I got the site. That works. I lost a little bit of search visibility from it, so don't get me wrong on that, but yeah. it was worth it. That's interesting. So, yeah, it's just such a digital career. That's fascinating. It's a product of the modern era. I do, yeah. I mean, I, I learned everything myself, be it the audio engineering and, and the, the digital and the promotion. I like to work. I, I'm one of those personalities that I enjoy being busy. I don't, I don't work because I have to. I work because I want to. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, David. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Uh, no, I thank you for, um, for oh, uh, the other thing is I'm, I'm principal clarinet in the Seabrook Opera, so that's another place to hear me. Um, Robert McFarlane is the conductor of that. He was Beverly Hills' assistant, and that's, uh, there's two, it's Cherry Hill in New York City, so the, the two of those, and I play um, principal clarinet in that. So I stay busy. That's great. Well, yeah, if you'd like to check out his website, it's mytempomusic.com, and um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Sean. If you're interested in winning product and services mentioned on the Clarity.com podcast, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you have any questions or feedback, 
please submit them to feedback at clarineat.com. That's feedback at clarineat.com. If you find that you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by following and interacting on social media sites. You can subscribe and leave reviews on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen. You can discuss and share content in your own blog, social media, or podcast with your friends, colleagues, students, and family. Or you can support it directly by making a donation or purchasing your new and neat Clarinet products from the clarinet.com online store at clarinet.com store. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on Monday.